Oh, good and gracious King and Father, we do come to you now. We come thankful for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us over the ages that we can have it this morning. Thank you, God, for the wonder of your word. Thank you for the practicality of your word. That when we come to a passage like this, We get to hear from our Lord Jesus teaching us how to pray. Lord, grant us hearts that are receptive to his teaching, to his word. Lord, convict us where we are so often prone not to pray. Lead us, Lord, into a greater intimacy with you that we might readily cry out to you and pray to you. Father, bless your people. Bless the preaching of the word. Help me, your servant. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you. God, you are our rock and our redeemer. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past few years, uh, a video has gone viral and it's been making the rounds. It seems to circulate every few months. It, likely many of you have seen it, but in it you can tell that a kid has said something funny, so mom does what moms do, right? Grab your camera, let's take a video of it and show it to the world, right? So she, she the video begins with her going, what? Did you say, what is God's name? The little girl in the back seat says, Howard, Howard. The mom's laughing by now, and she's like, how do you know that his name is Howard because because our father who art in heaven Howard be thy name (laughs) see mom Howard be thy name just like you I laugh every time I see a video and maybe this says I spend too much time looking at videos but every time I see it I laugh and I laugh because it's a good illustration It illustrates an important truth about prayer that our text addresses this morning. And here's that truth. Each one of us must be taught how to pray. Each one of us must be taught how to pray. You see, on on the one hand, prayer is so simple that while many Christians struggle to put words to their prayers, even children can learn to do it. Yet on the other hand, prayer is so profound that though we expect a child to struggle a little bit to understand its meaning, even the wisest and the most mature among us can misunderstand prayer all together. What I'm saying is that prayer is both simple and profound. It's profoundly Simple and simply profound. In Luke's effort to curate an account of Jesus' life and ministry, remember he's writing the, this gospel so that you can be certain about Jesus. He, I believe, has arranged the details of chapters 10 through 13 to illustrate a reality that Jesus had spoken of to the 72 missionaries back in chapter 10. In fact, just Turn your Bibles there, a page or so, back to chapter 10, verses 
21 and 22. Let's refresh our memories with what Jesus had said upon their return, upon their celebration of God working in their midst. Uh, Jesus rejoices, it says in 1021. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. See, already we've seen a living illustration of the wise and understanding ones that Jesus speaks of. Remember the lawyer in chapter 10, 25 to 37, the one whom the realities of eternal life had been hidden. And we've also seen a living illustration of the little children. Remember Mary of Bethany in verses 38 through 42 that we looked at last week, the one whom the realities of eternal life had been revealed. And now, in the passage before us, we continue. We continue to learn about God's faithful little children, turning from how they are like Mary, right, to how they're to fill their souls with Jesus and his word, to now how the little children are to cry out to God in their prayers. And this connection is easy to make right from the very beginning of the prayer as it's recorded for us in verse two. It's with the very first word we learn of the great privilege that we have as his little children. If you're taking notes today, I know many of you like to, this will be our first of three main points. Our great privilege. Our great privilege. What is this great privilege? We get to call God Father. We get to call him Father. Now, too many gallons of ink have been spilled over the difference between Luke's recording of what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer here, as I've just read it, and Matthew's record of the same, which most people are familiar with that one. And I don't want to take or waste too much time this morning by adding my little bit of teaspoon of somewhat type of wisdom to all those barrels of ink. Uh, But for those who are curious, I'll just give you this brief explanation. Matthew's record of this prayer, if you don't know, it comes in the Sermon on the Mount, which is in uh, Matthew 5 through 7, but the prayer is recorded in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. If you look at that account, and Luke's here, uh, I'll just say they're not from the same occasion. Okay? This isn't a case of uh, what many scholars like to do. Who recorded it correctly? Right? Let's go on a quest to discover what's the real Lord's Prayer. Who added? Who took away? If you're immune to this kind of discussion among scholars, blessed are you. <laughs> well, this is what people like to talk about, and then they miss what Jesus is teaching when they spend too much time. So the answer is actually quite simple. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And he did so, at least recorded for us, on at least two different occasions. The prayers are substantially the same, but they're not identical. And this really shouldn't surprise us. 
I see we have some teachers in the room. We definitely have parents in the room. You'll know as anyone who teaches, you often repeat what you say. You often repeat your teachings. But do you say it the same way twice? Or do you sometimes say it again? Maybe to the same crowd, maybe to a different crowd, but you simplify the words. Perhaps you clarify the words. Perhaps you expand on the words. Help the audience, your students, to understand it better. So with a topic as important as prayer, it makes complete sense that Jesus needed to teach about it on more than one occasion. And it makes even more sense when we account for the fact that as he's teaching it again, he's teaching it to a group of disciples who don't have a really good track record of getting it the first time. It makes complete sense that he, as he taught it, would keep it substantially the same. But perhaps the form might be different. The other thing important to understand about this is that in Jesus' day, it was very common for rabbis to teach prayers to their disciples. Prayers that had to be recited in rote. That means just repeat it. And if you do this, then this will happen, right? This is what honors God. It's kind of like that whole prayer of Jabez phenomenon that passed through at the turn of the millennium, right? If you pray it just like this, God will expand your horizons and you will be blessed and highly favored. Again, if you miss that whole thing, blessed are you among people. But it was very common. For disciples to, or excuse me, for rabbis and teachers to teach their disciples how to pray. So that's why this disciple, we're not told who it is, he comes to Jesus. I mean, Jesus is away praying. I mean, we could do a whole study, a different sermon series on how Luke focuses on Jesus in his prayers. Okay, so they're watching Jesus, the Lamb of God, the shepherd of Israel. He's spending time in prayer. And so it makes sense that he would come to him and say, hey, can you teach us to pray? Like John taught his disciples to pray. And listen, I would never discourage the routine recitation of the Lord's Prayer. It would be funny if I did, right? Because we often use it in our own worship services. I do believe that the variations here between Matthew and Luke show us something very important. That Jesus was giving us a normative, a normative, excuse me, a normative pattern for prayer, not a rigid form. He's giving us a pattern, not a form. Philip Ryken, pastor and commentator, I think said it well. He said it this way: the Lord's Prayer is a model, not a mantra. It's a model, not a mantra. He goes on, the important thing is not using the exact words that Jesus uttered, but rather following the same structure and incorporating the same themes into our own life of prayer. I think we can miss that if we don't actually celebrate that we have it here before us. Substantially the same, but yet a little bit different than what we might be used to. Well, notice that this model of prayer then begins by highlighting what I started with on this point. It highlights a great privilege for those who pray this way and who pray in saving faith. It begins with calling God Father. I just had us read 1022. Do you remember what it said? 
It even echoed what we heard read in our words of assurance this morning from John 1, 12 through 13. Through Jesus Christ and through his saving work on our behalf and through God's will, we've been made children of God. And as his children, we're invited to come to him, to come to him in simplicity and in intimacy. Friends, this was radical for this day. To even hear Jesus calling God this way and talking to God this way was different. And now he's teaching his disciples to talk to God as your father. It reminds me of a story I once uh, read in William Barclay's commentary. Uh, William Barclay tells about the time that an emperor returned to Rome in great triumph. And if you know when these emperors triumphed, they came back and had these big, huge parades, right? Everybody comes out to celebrate the streets are filled, and there's just thousands of soldiers marching down Main Street, so to say. And as they come to the family platform, a little boy jumped down off of the family platform and started to make his way toward the emperor. He's weaving in and out amongst the feet of these soldiers. And finally, one manages to grab him and picks him up and says, who do you think you are? Do you not know who that is up on that white horse? The little boy looked at him and said, Who who are you? I know who that is. To you, he's the emperor. But to me, he's my dad. He's my father. That is one of the profound and marvelous truths of our faith. We have a great privilege to come to the holy God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, and call him Abba Father, to call him Daddy, to come to him and call him Father. Don't let that truth get lost on you. Listen, I understand many of us have not good experiences with our earthly fathers, and that's hard. And that's a hard thing to bring sometimes to a point like this. But no matter what your experience has been, or maybe a shame that you carry as a father and your behavior, listen, because Jesus, as he says in chapter 10, 21, 22, because he's chosen to reveal the father to you, you can lay all that aside and you can come to him as your father. Even more because Jesus has sent his spirit into your heart. The one called the spirit of adoption in Romans 8. He's not only working to reveal or to uncover this truth to you. But the spirit is drawing you closer to his loving embrace. Remember Martha last week being pulled away and distracted by many things. Yet here's the spirit of God drawing you in closer to the father into his embrace so that you in turn can embrace him. And as you're drawn near to him, as you're emboldened to call him father, in this model of prayer, Jesus leads us now, first of all, to bring two petitions. So this is our second point this morning. For those of you taking notes, two petitions for God. So our great privilege Number one, number two, two petitions for God. 
Well, contrary to the little girl in that viral video I mentioned earlier, the first petition for God is not Howard be your name. It's rather hallowed be your name. This petition reminds us that God's name is so much more than a title. It's a reminder that God's name is all-encompassing. It refers to all that God is. So when we pray for his name to be hallowed, we're praying for his name to be made holy. Maybe that's another way to say it. His name to be made holy. We're acknowledging the holiness of God's eternal being. We're also declaring that his character is set apart from sin and that all of his attributes, all of his characteristics are absolutely perfect. And when we say, hallowed be your name, we're asking God to shine forth his holiness. We're not praying for him to become more holy. That's not possible for God to become more holy. He is perfectly holy. We're praying that he would be known as holy. This is a petition that pertains to his reputation. We're asking for God to be known to be God in all of his holiness. It's a very missional prayer. And this first petition is, like all the petitions that we'll see, it's personal and corporate. I mean, not only is there a lot of us in this model prayer, but listen, these petitions can be prayed individually or for others. You know, when you pray, hallowed be thy name, we're, we're asking for ourselves, right, that our lives would be a reflection of God's holiness, God's character. We're also asking that our lives and our actions would be a demonstration of God's character. It's a, another way to put it. It's a plea for our lives to be a living testimony of all that God is. But it's also a call for all the peoples of the earth. It's a call for everyone to join us in acknowledging him. Join with me and give to God all the honor and all the adoration and all the love and all the obedience that he is due. So Jesus, in this model, leads us to begin there. Father, hallowed be your name. To honor God's holy name. From there, we move to the second petition Second petition for God. It's from a focus on God's reputation to a focus on God's rule. We're to pray for his kingdom to come. Now, to be sure, in doing so, we're not praying for a particular nation state. We're not praying for a system of government. We're not praying for a geographic region on a political map. We're simply praying for God's rule. We're praying for the sovereign administration of his authority over all creation, his authority over all his enemies, and his authority over all his people, the church, the ones who honor him as king. And like the first, this is personal and corporate, right? When we pray this way, we're asking God to reign in our own hearts by faith. To help us, to help me surrender selfish desires. God, rule in our hearts. Allow us. Lord, lead us. Help us to be obedient to your revealed will. 
But you can pray that for your families. You can pray that for your church. You can pray that for your community. You can pray it for your nation. You can pray it for your world. And as we pray, we can ask God, make all these places an outpost of the kingdom. Places where God's divine dominion is embraced and celebrated. People would celebrate that God is king. When you pray this way too, you pray against the schemes of the devil. And you cry out for the kingdom to advance far and wide as the gospel spreads in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls in every place and amongst every people around the globe. Both personal and corporate. A pattern, a presentation, simple phrases that can be expanded in so many ways. And these first two petitions in the Lord's Prayer, they're vivid reminders that God's preeminence must be preeminent in our prayer. I'll put it another way. God's interests come first. God's interests come first. So let me ask you something. Let me meddle a little bit, as preachers tend to do. Do your own prayers reflect this reality? Do your own prayers reflect this truth? Do your own prayers show that your desire for God's reputation and God's reign come even before your own needs? Do you? I don't have a perfect track record. There's no finger pointing from here. But that's where it needs to start. How's the Holy Spirit calling you even now? To change. How might you, in your own prayers, how might you make God's interests come first? I mean, if we're honest, that's pretty convicting stuff. It's quite a challenge. And it's a necessary challenge. But there's comfort in that challenge. There's reason to take heart. Notice that Jesus doesn't use the priority of God's reputation and rule to just squash our own needs. He doesn't stop and say, yeah, if you just get that right, come back to me for lesson two. Right? Go figure that part out. I'm tired of hearing you babble on. Come back to me. No, it's not what he does. He continues. He establishes the priority and then he draws out the needs and brings the needs forward. And he does this with three distinct petitions. And this is our third and final main point this morning. Three petitions for us. Two petitions for God. Vertical ones. Now we have three horizontal ones. Three petitions for us. The first of these petitions is found in the words of verse 3. And it's a petition that's focused upon need. Give us each day our daily bread. Give us our daily bread. And when you live in a society like ours, with fully stocked convenience and grocery stores that seem to be almost on every corner, sometimes a petition like this can lose its significance. We've talked about this before, and I think most of you are aware enough to know that in most of the places around the world, 
that's not what it's like. The poverty is, is just surprising, and the hunger that people have is just devastating. When you meet people, as I have, who pray this prayer out of a true desperation and a true dependence, there's only one response. It's to be humbled. Because when you step back for a moment from yourself, even just step back from your freezers and refrigerators and pantries at home and cabinets that are full of all these things, right? When you just take a step back from that and ask yourself one question, where did all this come from? Where does all this come from ultimately? I know someone here might say, well, I earned it. I did it. Congratulations. You did it. But where did that come from? And then, right, we keep walking backwards. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? Where? It comes from God. When you ask that question, I think that's what this petition does. Right, it brings us back to being the Egyptians in the wilderness, being fed by the manna. God says, I'll give it to you every day. Take just what you need. And then I'll bring it back the next day. And then on that one day, the Sabbath, go ahead and take two days worth. It's that daily dependence. Every single one of us have the need for daily dependence. No matter how full our cabinets are or what zip code we were born into. If you're anything like me, you're inclined to trust your own ability to provide for your own needs. And then you just take God's grace and provision for granted. But when you pray this way, personally and corporately, it reminds you again, everything comes from God's hand. He gives it according to his will. And so we come to him, right, and express our dependence upon him. And we, we ask him for it. Even if we can go to the fridge and pull it out and eat it, we still say, Lord, give me what I need today. And oh, we don't have time to talk about the difference between needs and wants. It's clear. Lord, give us what we need today. We'll cover this more in the weeks to come, but if God truly is our good Father in heaven, will he not give us what we need? Will he not provide for us? And so when we come to him, we come to him in dependence and humility. The second petition for us moves from physical need to spiritual need. Verse 4, we're to, we're to pray for the forgiveness of our own sins as well as the grace to forgive others who have sinned against us. You see, the point here is we're not to come to the Father presuming upon our own righteousness. We're not to come to Him with any presumption at all, but whether we're to come with Him, come to Him, sorry, pleading, pleading for His mercy, asking for Him to continue to be gracious to us. You know, when we acknowledge our need for forgiveness, you know what we're doing? Acknowledging what, what one Puritan said, the exceeding sinfulness of sin. We're actually showing that we grasp the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Which, by the way, includes our own 
sinful unwillingness to extend forgiveness to others. Dale Ralph Davis, another pastor and commentator, uh, said no matter how convicting this petition is, it nevertheless, quote, is assurance that we will never run out of prayer material. For our sins supply us with plenty to mourn and pray over. You know, as a pastor for 14 years, an elder for many more than that, I'm used to criticism from people, and I don't mind. But the criticism I receive the most might be surprising to some of you. And when somebody levels this criticism, it actually tells me more about their heart uh, than the criticism and actually teaches me how to pray for them. And uh, you wanna, I won't take answers here, but maybe you can guess in your head what that criticism might be. Is that y'all talk too much and sing too much and pray too much about sin. Y'all talk about sin too much in your services. You confess sin, what's that? You sing about sin, what's that? And then when you preach, you talk about sin. How's that supposed to help me this week? Maybe you've even heard that. Well, I won't make a case for being as balanced as the Bible is balanced. Um, I'll just say this. Don't grow weary in facing up to the reality of sin. Don't go weary. Don't listen to the lies of the devil. That tells you all you need are these pop psychology different types of therapeutic messages that tells you how good you are. Look, y'all are wonderful. You're great. Why? Because Jesus is greater. If we don't face up to the exceeding sinfulness of sin, we will completely lose how wonderful, how marvelous, how glorious our salvation is. We won't realize from what we've been saved. We won't be able to cling to the hope of the gospel that says, not my works, but your work on the cross for me, Jesus. That's the only hope I have. I'm forgiven, redeemed, restored. And if I don't understand sin, I don't understand any of that. And so we come and we sing about sinfulness. We sing about the gospel, right? We talk about sin, but we remind ourselves of the remedy for sin. And yes, we confess our sin. Because God, our Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's our only hope, brothers and sisters. And so Jesus also leads us down that path. And all we're doing at a church like this is following our faithful shepherd where he leads us. The third and final petition for us focuses on our weakness by calling us to plead for divine protection. You look at the words at the end of verse 4, lead us not into temptation. Now, let's be clear, this petition um, does not imply that God himself is ever the one who tempts us. Rather, this petition acknowledges, and we didn't sing it this morning, but we've sung this hymn many times, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. You, you probably know that line. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So this petition like that acknowledges that even though we're often allured, but we're also tempted to go away by our own sinful desires, 
This is acknowledging that God is able to protect us in our times of temptation. It's even a plea and a prayer. God, keep me away from a particular temptation entirely. God, I know I'm weak. I know I'm prone to run from you. So help me. Keep me from it. You see, when we pray like this for ourselves, or parents in here know that's a prayer we pray for our children all the time, right? And as your pastor, as I pray for you, Lord, keep them, protect them. We're saying we're weak. Not only are we sinners in need of grace, but we are weak in need of strength. So we know the word tells us that God does provide a way out when we are tempted. He gives us more than we can handle, right? He does indeed do that. However, when we're tempted, that's what that verse means, he does provide a way out of the temptation. But here's what I think we can all agree on. Okay, if you understand your sinfulness, even your redemption, if you understand your sinfulness, if you understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin, I think we can agree on this. It's a lot safer for sinners like us to never be tempted at all. It's much safer. And this is why Jesus teaches us to pray this way. And I'm thankful he did. Because I said at the beginning, and I'll say again, each one of us must be taught to pray. And Jesus, the faithful shepherd of his people, did just that when one of those disciples came and asked him to do it. And I'll review from his answer here in these verses. We've learned that we can approach God by embracing the great privilege we have through Jesus to come to him and call upon him as Father. We've also learned to begin our prayers by making God's preeminence preeminent, to pray for God's reputation and God's reign to be known and acknowledged in our lives and even in the lives of others. And lastly, we've learned to pray for God's provision for our daily needs, to pray for his forgiveness for our daily sinfulness, and to pray for his protection in our daily weakness. That's the model that he's given to us. It's not a mantra, it's a model. Again, I feel the need to say this again. We're free to pray it exactly as he's revealed it, but you're also free to use it to guide and structure your own prayers as well. So I want to end today by encouraging you to be Lord's Prayer prayers. That was weird to say. I encourage you to be a Lord's Prayer prayer. But before I do that, I think I just need to make an appeal for you to first of all pray. Pray. Some of you have been practicing prayer and growing in the spiritual discipline for many years. Some of you haven't. Some of you are just now realizing how truly important it is. So wherever you're at, on one extreme or the other, or somewhere in the middle, here's the most important thing I can tell you today. There's no shame. There's no shame. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, look, there are improper ways to pray. After all, God has many names, and one of them is not Howard. That would be an improper way to pray. But listen, don't, don't let your fears, don't let your inadequacies, 
Don't let your whatever is keeping you from prayer insert answer there. Don't let those things keep you. Don't let them keep you from going to the Father. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, if you've been born again by his spirit, the spirit is alive within you, the spirit of adoption, you are his child. And God the Father delights to hear from you. He welcomes you to come to him and speak with him and to make requests of him. Don't think he's going to cast you away because you're praying about the same thing again. Don't think that he's going to turn a deaf ear because you did this or that. Those are lies. Lies of the devil. Rather run to him. Go to him. He's a good and gracious king and father. Pray to him. Pray. Pray for your good. Right? Pray for your growth and grace. And of course, pray for God to be glorified. Amen? Amen. And amen.